Welcome to the Policy Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Patrice, writer, political science master's graduate, and dirty martini enthusiast. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking social, political, economic, and environmental issues as they relate specifically to policy from both regional and global perspectives with the simple goal of discussing solutions and systems that put people before politics. Fair warning, sometimes the content is intense and we drop some F-bombs. Thanks for listening in and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the first podcast of the year. I am so excited to be back with you after unexpectedly falling off the face of the earth about two seconds after launching the podcast in 2021. Today's podcast, by popular request, focuses on explaining the Russian-Ukraine crisis. So before we talk about today's topic, I want to take a really quick detour back to the end of 2021 and my associated disappearance. So last year's final podcast was titled Traveler Camps and the Power of Language and Policy, and then I promptly fell off the map. That wasn't where I wanted to to leave the podcast at the end of last year. But a few things happened. The first was that in the face of our exit from the Middle East, my husband and his soldiers were rapidly deployed to help aid with efforts. Separation with only 24 hours notice for an unknown amount of time is at best a significant emotional event. At worst, it's a very cold bed for months on end with no clear idea of what is happening or for how long you will be asked to endure it. And that can mean a little bit of distraction and a lot of bit of anxiety. This deployment came unexpectedly and the way our exit from the Middle East went down hit a lot of us in the military community upside the head. How military life transpired for me behind the scenes was not only a lot of personal distraction by current events, but just as Policy Out Loud was taking off, I was in the very real personal throes of reality, coping with what it means to be in and on the receiving end of policy, specifically policy that second and third order effects not only hit the military community hard, but also hit our Afghan partners hard and also cut the human population of my own house down by half. Second was that I was struggling to find my own sense of purpose in building this platform. Ironically, if you were to look at my calendar from November of 2021 on a mid-month Wednesday, you would see an event highlighted in yellow to put up a blog answering my own personal why question. I had already built the blog, and one would assume that if someone has already created something, they must have their purpose figured out. But figuring out our purpose and our why is a lot of self-discovery. And that's never an easy or clean or tidy process. In fact, it's a lot of shit kicking and self-talk and personal reflection and maybe a couple versions of, of a vision board. And the takeoff of the platform in the face of a deployment brought out a lot of air quote stuff. The irony of writing about policy while my own bed was cold was at no point lost on me. And I had some personal shit kicking and self-talk to do. My husband eventually came home I eventually answered my personal why, and the temperature of my bed from August to December of last year can now be added to a list of personal testimonies I can give about why policy matters to me. If you'd like to read the rest on that, that blog is up on the website, but rather than talk about that for our first episode, it turns out that the beginning of 2022, colored by a forthcoming war in the East, dictates that we need to just jump right into current events of this year rather than rehashing last year. The content is going a little bit out of order again, and at this point, 
I think that this is just going to be a, a platform that is constantly pivoting in the face of current events. Um, but the plan was to give a breakdown of exactly what policy and foreign policy is on the podcast before jumping into the role of war um, in achieving policy. But as is the way of life and as is the way of this platform, we are adapting and starting with war and working our way backwards to what foreign policy actually is. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about how war is a tool of policy, and then we'll be breaking down the Russian-Ukraine conflict. As the talk of war has flashed across television screens and computer screens and cell phone screens, darkens the doorsteps of those in service, and is cause for the concern is cause for concern for the United States, all of Europe, and the world as a whole. This podcast is intended to help listeners gain a better basic understanding of a conflict rooted in politics, history, and ideological differences. It's the Russian-Ukraine conflict broken down into layman's terms. Now, if you're familiar with my platform, you may have already seen that there is a, a blog that went up on this sp specific topic. What's great about listening to the podcast is that first and foremost, the podcast is always going to have more information. And that's because studies show that if I've got you on my podcast, I've got your attention, but people don't like to read anymore. And Lord knows that the, the graphic component of written pieces is extremely important. And that is damn near the hardest part for me. So I know that if you're on the podcast, I'm building like a very real relationship with you. I have your attention and I can give you more information. Secondly, because these two coincide with one another, the blog comes and then the audio comes, I'm continuing to research. So the information is changing and the density is changing and current events are changing as I'm adapting a blog into an audio component. And so you're getting a more updated version, which is pretty cool. So how exactly is war policy? Diplomacy, foreign aid, sanctions, deterrence, and use of military force are all tools a state can use to achieve its foreign policy objectives. So when we're addressing foreign policy, there is a lot of ways to go about approaching how we achieve end goals wherever it is we, we have an end goal. Each of the methods listed is an instrument for a state to achieve an established goal. Like the tools listed, war, or use of force is an instrument of policy and one that can be highly effective. There are decrees of force, but in this particular case, we're looking at war. It's the method or series of methods employed by a country or leader to achieve a political objective. It is how a country can achieve its end goal. The purpose for which use of force is intended will shape the course, character, tactical approach, and spread of war. War can be practical and effective as a means of policy when used to achieve an end result. But war without a policy objective becomes pointless, costly, and devoid of sense. In order for war to be rational, it must serve an end objective. And it must serve an end objective that other methods are not helping to reach. Countries can go to war for several reasons. These reasons include, but are of course not limited to, ideological changes, economic or territorial gain, religion, nationalism, civil, revenge, and defense. 
ultimately, the peace and prosperity of a nation is unattainable until its security is established. A nation, its traditions, freedoms, and identity are truly only secure when a nation has the ability to protect itself. Use of force or war is employed when other methods such as diplomacy, deterrence, or sanctions fail to achieve an agreement, compromise, or a country's desired outcome. In regard to the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine, NATO countries are working to employ diplomacy, deterrence, and are threatening sanctions against Russia as a means of discouraging Russian aggression in Ukraine. For good definitions on what each of these alternative methods of war mentioned in this conversation's means, if you head over to the website, to the associated blog post, and you scroll to the bottom, you're going to see a list of resources that I use in um, compiling all of this information. In that list, you will see a link to the Borgen Project. And the Borgen Project gives a really excellent set of definitions on each of these kind of methods that are used to achieve foreign policy. So you'll want to head over there. So what exactly is the conflict between Ukraine and Russia? So I'm going to give you the most bastardized version of the Russian-Ukraine conflict in an effort to help you break down what you see on the news. I am breaking it down for you like I would a friend over coffee, overly simplified. And I'm doing this because there are so many websites, there are so many news sources that are answering various parts of this conflict. But if you don't have time to piece together every single one of those sources and you don't have historical context, it can make understanding this conflict really difficult. But this is a conflict that is complex and it's got years of history that have led to what we're seeing now. It's complex in ideology. It's complex in history. It's complex in, in lineage. It's, it's a very complicated conflict. And so in trying to help you make sense of it, it's gonna be absolutely oversimplified. Um, sites that you could check out if you want more information include NPR, BBC, and PBS. Those do a really good job of explaining the current situation. But again, if you lack historical context or just sheer time to read like 20 different articles and jigsaw the bigger picture together, it can be really confusing. But for the love of all things good, right, and holy, Please do not go to websites that are inflammatory or bias. That does not help anything. <laughs> so there's that little plug. So before we get started, we need to actually back this conflict up a little bit. Ukraine until 1991 was part of the Soviet Union. Ukraine declared itself independent from the Soviet Union shortly before the Soviet Union fell. As a country, Ukraine is roughly the size of Texas, and we'll talk about why that's important here in a minute. Um, that following the that following the fall of the Soviet Union was wavered has wavered between pro-Russian and pro-European. The size of the country is important when we think of how war could play out in relationship to the sheer scale. So, just imagine war in the East in an area the size of Texas. That's kind of what we're talking about here. The crisis in Ukraine began in late 2013 with protest in Ukraine's capital city after the president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, 
rejected a deal for greater economic integration with the European Union. This sparked conflict between those in Ukraine who wanted to foster relationships with the EU and identify more with Western practices and policies, and those in Ukraine who are pro-Russian and identify more with Eastern practices and policies. The lines drawn between the two groups is blurry. It's not merely, the lines are not merely drawn due to language or geography. Ukraine has a long integrated history with Russia, which has helped to further complicate the nature of this conflict. The majority of the country, however, is leaning towards Europe in their policy preferences. Fast forward to today, the conflict has been going on since 2013-2014, and Russian troops are now building at the border, tensions whose headlines are perpetually um, across the United States and across Europe news sources. So let's start with Ukraine's side. Ukraine wants to join NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. A quick sum up of what NATO is if you're not familiar with NATO. NATO is an international political and military organization of several countries with the aim of guaranteeing the freedom and security of its members through political and military means. Members include the US, Canada, the UK, and most of the European countries. Basically, it's a gang of countries bonded by shared beliefs that have each other's back politically and militarily. By joining NATO, Ukraine secures its right to self-determination. It secures itself against Russian invasion, incursion, and influence, and legitimizes itself as an independent democratic nation. Ukraine wants to join because the country then has the political and military backing of 30 other countries. This would help to guarantee them an autonomous future as a country, able to maintain their independence and dictate their own foreign policy. Basically, if you mess with one NATO country, you've messed with them all. Additionally, membership with NATO would create a deeper bond with Europe, making it more likely that Ukraine could join the European Union, which is one of the country's policy goals. It would also help to build and solidify stronger relationships between Ukraine and the U.S. Ukraine is not currently a NATO member because they do not meet membership requirements. There are several, but primarily... You can't join NATO when you're in the middle of a current conflict, which of course it is, with Russia. In regards to what is currently happening, NATO is clear about the limits of support it will provide to non-member countries. While it has supported non-member countries during humanitarian emergencies, NATO does not deploy to non-member countries. It will, however, hold the line of its member state countries. All right, now we're going to go talk about we're going to go talk about Russia's side. Putin doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO or to build closer ties with the EU or the United States. Now, to be clear, there is a minority percentage of the Ukrainians who are pro-Russian and also don't want to join NATO, which further supports Putin's position. Ukraine has a large population of Russians living within its borders, which helps to further insulate Putin's perspective on this particular issue. But Russia's side is multifaceted. The first reason that Putin doesn't want Ukraine joining NATO has to do with security. Russia's foreign policy is guided by three chief objectives. Chief amongst those objectives is security, which is given primacy above all other social and economic factors, i.e. Russia really wants to secure its foothold. 
Russia's leader sees Ukraine joining NATO as the West encroaching on Russia's doorstep. If the West borders Russia, the West has more power in the region. The second reason is influence. Second to security, Russia wants to be seen as a global power. President Putin sees Ukraine as part of historical Russia and the former Soviet Union, i.e., Russia believes it has the right to influence in the Ukrainian region because of where it's located and because of their shared historical ties. Having influence over Ukraine legitimizes Russia's status as a global power while keeping the West away from its doorstep and region of influence. The third reason has to do with territorial integrity. Russia has no distinguishing landscapes that help to identify and maintain the borders between Russia and Ukraine. So for example, I want you to think of Switzerland, like picture that in your head. When you have seen a picture of Switzerland, you're probably imagining, and I can confirm, that it is like extremely mountainous. Like they are very blessed in what their like mountain region looks like. It is, that's what God's country looks like. Switzerland has very clear borders created by that mountainous landscape. The mountains create not only a boundary, but the country can easily defend its borders because there are only a few easy points of access to that country because the country is surrounded by mountains. The space between Russia and Ukraine doesn't have this. The lack of distinguishing landmasses between Ukraine and Russia would make it easy for Ukraine, backed by the West, to push into Russia should Ukraine join NATO and choose to do so. If Ukraine joined NATO, Russia would have to increase military spending on security to hold the ambiguous border. This would be really expensive for Russia, both economically and militarily. So let's talk about timing. Timing for this particular conflict is critical. Ukraine has an emerging free market economy, which, minus a few setbacks, has been growing since the year 2000. Pivot over to weapons. Currently, Kyiv is stocking up on weapons to defend itself with the help of the United States and the United Kingdom. These weapons include anti-tank missiles, ammunition, and additionally, Ukraine is set to begin producing Turkish combat drones and is eager to develop a missile program of its own. The combination of these two things, their free market economy and their accumulation of weapons, means that Ukraine has established the power to begin defending itself against Russian invasion, incursion, and influence. Independently, any one of these things could threaten the Russian heartland. But together, it's a very threatening combination. As the economy continues to improve in Ukraine, as weapons are produced and programs developed, Ukraine will only grow in strength. The proliferation of weapons makes the invasion of Ukraine exceedingly costly, monetarily and militarily. It is unlikely that there will ever be a time in the near future where Ukraine will be easier or cheaper for Russia to strike than right now. So this conflict is very real, especially in terms of timing. So you're listening to this and you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, this is a conflict that's between Russia and Ukraine. What does this have to do with me? Why am I related to this? Why do I need to know this? How does this involve the United States? The United States is part of NATO. It's the largest and most powerful country in the organization militarily and economically. While each country plays a critical role in the organization, the United States plays an important role in legitimizing the cooperative efforts and upholding the values of NATO, the United Nations Charter, 
and the international principles that Russia is challenging. According to the United Nations Charter, the right to self-determination is an inalienable right. By virtue of that right, people and countries can freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. Russia is a United Nations member, but is conveniently ignoring this part of the charter as it throws its weight around with Ukraine. But this isn't just a theoretical issue. Crimea is an example of seized territory that did in fact violate the international principles with Ukraine. Though Ukraine is not a NATO member, the right to territorial integrity transcends a country's borders, alliances, or geographical location. Russia's threat of further force against Ukraine threatens the common principles that govern the sovereignty of international communities as a whole. It challenges not only Ukrainians' autonomy, but NATO's legitimacy and democracy, democracy as a whole. To put it bluntly, Uncle Sam getting involved makes other power countries think twice about how they want to involve themselves with other countries. Should we be the global police? Personally, I don't think so. But do we hold the line of democracy for other countries? Yeah, we absolutely do. And that means something to countries that want to enjoy the same freedoms we do, who may not otherwise be able to achieve freedom and democracy alone. And it has a measurable impact on their ability to achieve that freedom. Our participation has a very true and measurable impact on their ability to achieve the autonomy that they too want to enjoy. Additionally, if conflict turns into a firefight in Ukraine, that conflict is right on Europe's doorstep. That can become expensive and dangerous, both physically and economically, for Europe and all of its NATO members and all of the country's citizens. It's just too close for comfort and could quickly turn into a conflict that spreads. And a war that spreads across Europe would be felt across the entire globe. So what exactly is at risk? Well, each one of the points I'm about to make could not only be its own blog post, but probably its own blogging platform, as well as its own podcast and probably its own podcasting platform. So in the spirit of baseline knowledge, I'm going to try to keep each of these points relatively brief and hope to in the future be able to expand upon them. So there are several things that are at risk. In a very realistic sense, conflict in Ukraine risks further deterioration of U.S. and Russian relationships. This is true if Russia enters Ukraine, and this is especially true if Russia expands its presence into a NATO country. If Russia were to enter a NATO country, it would solicit an aggressive response from the United States as the U.S. is a NATO ally. Experts have also expressed general concern about how Putin's demands and possible entry into Ukraine could affect other Eastern European countries. These heightened tensions also have a very real impact on how the United States, Europe, and Russia develop cooperation on other issues such as terrorism, arms control, human trafficking and migration, and political solutions in other parts of the world such as Syria. In a general sense, there are also a number of social, economic, political, environmental, and historical issues that arise in the face of war. So social issues, we're going to start there. War destroys communities and families. Forced migration is the byproduct of sudden life-threatening events such as war and regional instability, which can lead to statelessness, 
homelessness, poverty, reduction in education, reduction in traded commodities, goods, and services, and can cause unemployment. It's, you know, the list goes on. Migrants can affect host communities by leading to price increases across the market, as well as housing and resource shortages. It leads to physical and psychological harm to both children and adults and has a measurable impact on human rights and human trafficking. The most threatening consequences of war include death, injury, sexual violence, malnutrition, illness, and disability. Depression, anxiety, and PTSD are also listed as common psychological outcomes. Now again, I'm going to take on a couple of these different topics, and if you want to know where these sources come from, you're going to head over to the blog, scroll to the bottom, and check the resources section. I promise you that when I am saying these things, they are coming from a place of um, well-read research. (laughs) So they're not just getting pulled out of nowhere. It's not just a Google search. Um, War also causes economic issues. So aside from the very real cost of human life, war comes at a serious economic cost. When money is allocated to military spending, it often draws from other places in need of financial support. Loss of buildings and infrastructure are likely to occur. There can be a decline in the working and taxpaying population. There is often a rise in debt, and there is disruption to normal economic activity such as trade. Social issues can create a slew of economic issues, and inevitably, the price of war will be felt in the prices we pay for goods and services. And then there's political issues. So in a very general sense, war can affect the stability of governments and the confidence individuals put in their leadership. Political, economic, and social agendas may shift as a result of war. Political issues is like, one of those ones I went so stinking general with because it is so stinking expansive. Like th- that would just turn into a rabbit hole galore, which I love, but that's for another, that's for another one. Um, environmental. So until recent years, the effects of war on land and sea have not been closely researched or considered, but new studies are showing that it's not just land that affects war, but war that affects land. Mining, logging, and large-scale destruction of entire ecosystems in a short amount of time have a wide breadth of effects on water security, food security, stability of local species, and future usability and habitability of destroyed lands. So when we start getting into the the environmental one, so I kind of already knew about some of the environmental stuff. I learned about it when when I was in school. But reading about this was actually really interesting because I had no idea. Like when we talk about environmental impact, we don't actually talk about war. We talk about farming. We talk about CO2 emissions and we talk about um, deforestation, but we don't talk about war. And war actually has this really intense impact on the environment, which is super, super interesting. If we ever talk about environmental policy, that's going to be like one of the pinnacles of that um, particular area of policy that we're going to focus on. I found it super interesting. And then lastly... Historical issues. A sense of history is a stabilizing factor in cultures. And in the face of war, religious sites, historical architecture, and art are often destroyed. Destruction of these binding facets of culture can be damaging to cultural identity and demoralizing for a nation's people and can damage the preservation of that culture. So essentially to destroy culture is a very effective tactic in war because it's very demoralizing for the people on the receiving end. Um, So it brings up historical issues. So 
why should you care? Why, why is this something that flashes across our phones or our Facebooks or wherever we're getting our information, across our televisions, wherever it is that we go? Why is this something that we should be paying attention to? Why should we care? Especially when there's so many stinking headlines out there that are asking for our attention. Why is this the one that we pay attention to? Well, first and foremost, the threat that you see on the news is very real in both political and geographical terms, as well as timing and the economic position of Ukraine and Russia. Not only would this have an immediate and measurable impact on social, economic, and political infrastructures of Ukraine, and very likely across Europe and the United States, but this will have a very measurable impact on stateside Americans. It's likely that this would be felt every time you go to the pump and pay for gas, reflected in the prices of commodities, and affect migratory patterns into our country. It's also likely that the need for intervention, be it by refuge or remediation, would be necessary. And shamelessly, and this is where I get into that like military soapbox plug, you should care because the people holding the line of democracy are your compatriots. They are your people. It's not just our people, but we we are the largest portion. We are the we have the strongest economy, we have the most people, we have the most bodies. And these people serve you. They hold the line between humans' inalienable right to self-determination and those who would strip people of that power. And that that sense of purpose that your compatriots serve is a country issue and one that we should be aware of. So lastly, what can you do? I really want this platform not to be merely educational, but empowering in something that you can tangibly do and participate in. I don't, there's plenty of things out there that can educate us, but, but I want what separates this platform to be something that not only educates us, but gives us the tools to achieve our desired outcomes. And sometimes those suggestions are going to be weak. I have a bunch of suggestions that I'm about to talk to you about, and they don't feel as strong as some of the initiatives I believe that we could take within our own country's borders. Foreign policy becomes a little bit harder for the individual to participate in rather than issues that you can achieve within your local communities, within your state, within our, within our own national policy. But I still think that there are ways that in local and national policy and in foreign policy that we can get involved. And so we're going to talk about those. So what can you do? When I was growing up, this is a crazy thing for me to say because I've now been married to the military married to the military. It's like one of those general terms. It's like a soapbox I could stand on, but I've been married to a man in the military for seven years. (laughs) So it's crazy for me to say this, but when I was growing up, I didn't know a single service member past or present and not knowing a single service member gave me this super false notion that there was this huge gap between the line of freedom and myself. It was this thing that I thought just kind of existed and I knew soldiers held the line and I you know, knew that we had service and that's about all I could tell you. And so that gap seemed huge. But now, especially as a person who 
definitely isn't a green suitor, but doesn't entirely associate as a civilian because of the way in which my life is structured in association with the military. What I can tell you is that wherever you sit, you are closer to the fight than you probably realize. And here's what you can do to help. So first and foremost, bring awareness to what's going on. Talk about what's happening. Talk about these headlines. Talk about what you're learning. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it at the dinner table. Talk about it in the coffee shop. Talk about it on your social media. Talk about it. Seldomly is our country these days unified on any particular issue. We are so divided in so many different ways. But a nation that's unified in its stance on policy, specifically foreign affairs, is actually really intimidating to anyone who would oppose that nation's position. A nation backed by its people is a threat. And so your awareness of this, your discussion of this, your participation in conversing about this is significant because driving the conversation and being able to to achieve that sort of common ground as a nation, unified in its stance on how we believe we should participate, which is definitely not a unified front, is actually really important. And it's one of those things that can be kind of hard for us to achieve because we're so often divided by party lines. And I try to keep this a very neutral platform, but I can tell you in no way am I neutral about how we participate in national or foreign policy. But where we can find common ground and where we can unify on these issues is really important. Secondly, when you vote, vote for leadership. And we're not quite yet in voting season, but I know that we're all considering what leadership we want in the future and what we what we like, what we would change. When we do get to voting, vote for leadership that understands the cost of our global participation and takes that responsibility seriously. We seriously, desperately as a country need to stop voting like our our internal agenda is the only thing that, that impacts the American public. We are so consumed by internal affairs that we often aren't considering what our global footprint looks like and we need a leader that can balance both. Because the truth of the matter is, is that however this plays out, we are going to be impacted by it. If we begin sanctioning Russia, you're gonna feel it at the pump. I mean, your gas prices are gonna be affected by that. There are going to be several second and third order effects that you are going to feel, and that is due to our foreign policy and our foreign relationships because we are involved with other countries by way of travel and trade, culture and oil, by migration. We are not independent in in many ways anymore. We are we are very interconnected with other countries, and so paying attention to those issues does has a does have a very direct impact on your life. And so as a nation, we, when we vote, we have, to, we have to incorporate thought processes about what foreign policy looks like. Um, next, you can engage trusted news sources for the most up-to-date information. Um, so for all things good, right, and holy, please don't go just believing all sensational and inflammatory information. It's really attractive. I know everybody really likes to get their blood pressure up ev- all the time now, but please, for the love of God, go use a good news source. (laughs) Use one that isn't swinging heavily left and isn't swinging heavily right and is trying to give you the facts. (laughs) Because the inflammatory stuff, that's not helping us. It's sensational. It makes good money. 
It gets your attention. It gets your blood pressure up. Getting your blood pressure up gets you to pay attention. But stay up to date on the most up-to-date information. And if you're here, I'll tell you what, I'm really happy that you're here and I'm really happy that, <laughs> happy. I'm really, if you are here, I'm really happy that you're here and I'm really happy that you're listening to this. And I want to be a trusted source for you, but you should always go check other sources. I should never be given singular power over your thought processes, even if I'm entirely fact-based to the best of my ability. So make sure that you're using other resources. Like I'm happy that you're here with me and I want to be building a relationship with you as a listener, but make sure that you're going and and checking my sources. Make sure that you're checking other other places. Stay up to date. Don't just trust me. I do not deserve that kind of power in your life. As much as I want to I do want a powerful relationship with you, I don't deserve that kind of power. Um you can find organizations whose values align with yours and support them. Maybe you care about service member organizations, or maybe you care to help those directly affected by war, or maybe you care about organizations that work with um, migrants. If you do have an organization or something that you're really passionate about, get ready to support their efforts by putting your money and your time where your values are. There are a lot of good people out there doing very good work that are helping to address very real needs. And eventually we'll get into policy and political structure and how organizations interact with the needs that we face as people and how we can improve this system. But in the very immediate sense, supporting organizations that support your motives is a good thing. And again, we'll get into kind of that structure eventually, because I do think that there's a lot of ways that can be improved. I come from a background in nonprofits, and I actually have a really strong opinion on like nonprofits role and their relationship with the government. And we'll talk about that eventually. But for the time being, support the efforts that you believe in. You can do good work by donating your time to where your values to where your values lie. You can fly your flag high. Y'all, I know that we have got so many issues within our country and people are not wanting to fly their flags high because they may feel some level of confusion or frustration or shame. But there's going to come a point where I am going to get into travel blogs um, and convert those into um, podcasts. And as a person who has now lived outside of her home country for just shy of three years... What I can tell you is that our flag is a symbol of freedom for other countries. And I didn't know what that meant. I Like I, you know, I knew that that was a thing when I lived in the States. I didn't know what that meant until I moved here. Um, I've now been to countries that like are proud to serve Americans. They are proud to stand alongside Americans. I just got back from Barcelona like two days ago and I was standing at the counter and um, I handed my passport over um, to the to the guy behind the counter, and he goes, "You're an American," and I said, "Yeah, I am." And um, he goes, "Are you military?" And that's a really threatening question because you never know what sort of response you're going to get. And so generally, I don't tell the truth. I generally say that we're, you know, I'm a writer, and my husband's an engineer, and we're over here working with a firm because you don't necessarily want to tell people that you're military because. I've told people that before, and I've gotten really mixed responses of like huzzah and like fuck you responses and that can feel very threatening so oftentimes I lie and he goes are you are you military and I was like we're engineers (laughs) and he goes 
but are you military? And I'm like, eh, yeah, because <laughs> he really wanted to talk about this. And, it, you know, I'm like kind of making a face, you know, while I'm talking to him. And he's like, oh, my gosh, I just I am such a proud supporter of Americans. And I am just so proud for our country to be in relationship with your country. And I I and you guys have the you have the and he goes, and you guys have the Super Bowl coming up. Are you excited for the Super Bowl? I'm going to watch the Super Bowl. I didn't even know the Super Bowl was coming up because for me to watch the Super Bowl over here, I have to watch it at like one in the morning and that's just a terrible hour for me as a human. I'm not a human at that hour. So I haven't seen it in a couple of years. Um, and he was like, I'm just so proud. And I'm, I'm a huge American supporter and freedom. And he was talking to me like just emphatically about his support of our flag. And he's not the first person that's done that. I have seen it in Eastern European countries. I have seen it in Germany. I have seen it in Spain. I have seen it across the board. I've also gotten some negativity. But for the most part, I uh, we, we see a lot of people that really love to stand behind our flag. And it's not even their flag. Our flag is a symbol of freedom. And it's a symbol of freedom across the entire globe. And if what you believe in is the principle of self-determination and autonomy something that this platform is built on protecting and discussing and preserving, then fly your flag high. Because what we do is something to, to recognize. And that's not insignificant. There's a lot of ways in which we can improve it. And I've got my beliefs on that. And they're, hell, they may even be highly controversial in their own. But nonetheless, we hold that line of freedom for other countries and for other people. And in an imperfect system, that is still something of value. In all the ways in which I think that we could improve, all the ways in which I think we could change, that's still in our current system something of value. And so we can fly our flags high. And lastly, upon that like high flag flying soapbox comes my one about the military. And it is this. When you hear the drums of war ringing in your ears... You remember that those are the heartbeats of the men and women who have been called to protect freedom at home and abroad. When you think of war, you don't simply say our troops. It's so easy to just say our troops and then you depend on those people and you don't know who they are. You call those people by name. When you can call a soldier by name, when you can recognize a military family, what you do is you remove the separation between yourself and that line of freedom. You eliminate that gap that for so many of us is so big. And if you can't think of a military person, if you can't think of a military family, if you can't think of a soldier, I happily volunteer my family to your inner circle. Because to know us is to know that the line between freedom And how that line is held, it eliminates that gap. And that is important. Knowing our names, knowing our soldiers' names, knowing one of us, whether it be a family, whether it be a soldier, it'll remind you how close you actually are to the fight. And on that note, thank you for listening in. I hope that you have found this to be an enlightening podcast. If you have, I am a new podcaster and I would deeply appreciate your feedback, um, likes, comments, hearts, whatever it is your listening platform allows you to do. I would love it if you would give me a review, give it a like, give it a share and go ahead and follow. That helps me to grow. 
Um, so if you love this, go ahead and, and continue to come back. Um, I want to continue to do this work, and I hope that it continues to serve you and how you participate in this larger world that we all share. I'll see you soon.